Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation, and today uh, I am thrilled uh, to be able to, to talk with one of the people in sports and broadcasting that I admire most, and that's Brandel Shambly. Uh, I'm a, I've been in broadcasting a long time, and one of, the, one of the people I've looked up to as to the way he do, does his job and the manner in which he does it uh, is Brandel Shambly. Um, I've never had the opportunity to meet him. Uh, I have been a longtime admirer and fan. Uh, I just I love his love for the game, uh, for golf history, uh, and how he can give a reasoned judgment and stress test his ideas uh, and is able to have a, a debate with another uh, without getting his undies in a bunch. He is a, just a, a wonderful broadcaster and, uh, and a tremendous student of the game, and I'm honored to be able to spend time with Brandel Shambly, and I think you'll enjoy it. happy to have on this Five Clubs conversation, uh, Brandel Eugene Shambly. And, and Brandel, uh, one, I'm a huge admirer of yours, both as a person and a professional. Uh, but let's start out with the, uh, I guess you'd call it the elephant in the room, and that's the, the Live Golf Tour and how it relates to the PGA Tour. Uh, first, your, just your broad perspective on the landscape of golf, professional golf right now with the Live Golf Tour and the PGA Tour. Well, I'd say it's definitely a threat. Uh, I mean, sure, everybody in the world of professional golf is talking about it because they have, a, and we're talking about the uh, Saudi Arabia regime, but specifically about Mohammed bin Salman, who is MBS. He's the, uh, he's the leader of this fund. And they have uh, unlimited uh, budget, and they have a very big need to do what's known as sports watching. If your audience isn't familiar with that term, essentially it's uh, hiring entertainers and uh throwing lavish uh, amounts of money at entertainers and athletes to have these big events, to get them to look over there at the event and not specifically at the um, egregious atrocities being committed within those countries. Uh, but MBS and his, and I'm going to call them thugs because that's what they are, are, are funding this league and they're trying to buy as many of the best players in the world and, Essentially, it's a, a hostile takeover, an attempted hostile takeover of the PGA Tour. So it will eventually, I have no doubt, end up in court where the tour's policies about granting um, uh, leaves to go play in these events will, be, will come into question. Uh, the thing is that those policies have always been under scrutiny. They have gone to court on those. The tour has always come out on the right side of those. But uh, it's setting up for, and I know you, uh, you're a lawyer by trade, so... You know, I wouldn't mind, you know, if, if, if you have an opinion on this from an antitrust standpoint, uh, because I have talked to a few lawyers about this, and there's some that say it's an uphill battle for the tour, and some say the tour is on steady ground, but uh, eventually this will be fought uh, in the courts, I have no doubt. Yeah, it is a difficult question on the antitrust side, and, and one that has nuance to it. And speaking of nuance, Brandall, uh, oftentimes in, in any, any area, we tend to go all or nothing, black or white. On the moral side, if you just keep this to a moral decision, uh, I don't think there seems to be controversy. It's a, it's a black and white uh, decision. 
do you feel that that the players, PGA Tour players that are deciding upon whether to participate uh, in the Live Golf Tour, it's solely a moral issue, or do you see it as having any nuance at all? Well, I think the ones that are ignoring the moral issues are being willfully blind to it, because if you spend, I don't know, I spend a lot of time on it, but if you just spent an hour uh, researching the atrocities and specifically what MBS is trying to do, either on the internet or, you know, go to YouTube, uh, you know, and I, I look at all the debates, uh, uh, I look at all the, the commentary, both from in, within Saudi Arabia, but those who've managed to escape Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, I listened to a fellow a lot by the name of Mehdi Hassan, uh, who is, I, I think, just a brilliant analyst. Um, uh, and Mehdi Hassan has been on some debates about whether or not the West should completely separate from Saudi Arabia. Obviously, that's a very controversial topic, but he makes and has strong opinions about this for very specific reasons, all of them being rooted in the atrocities committed uh, in Saudi Arabia, but specifically by MBS, and that he is unique amongst uh, crown princes uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia, that he has centralized power, and that never in the modern history has Saudi Arabia uh, been under the oppression or repression, anything like this. So that's where that's at. If they spend an hour online, they would research that and realize, do you want to play golf for MBS? Do you want to do that? Do you want to give up your independent status as a player? Because no longer will they be able to take a week off here or there if it, if it uh, conflicts with an event. So they will lose their independent status. And they'll trade that for money. It's an age-old existential question. Will you trade your morals for money? Uh, will you trade your reputation for compensation? Uh, and that's why it is so interesting. It's not just about, uh, and, and certainly it is fundamentally about uh, uh, the, the success and continuation of success on the PGA Tour, the PGA Tour's charity dollars, but it is also this, this existential question. Who's going to do it? Who's going to trade their morals for money? And it turns out a lot of people are willing to. And look, I know people that have been offered upwards of $10 million just to commentate on this event. Uh, and, and the particular person I'm thinking of turned them down. And I applauded this person for it, but others uh, will be tempted by the money, no doubt. And even the richest golfers uh, will be tempted by this. So it's, it's gonna be a question back and forth, like a tennis volley. Uh, you know, who's taking it, who's not? Uh, and it's, it's really gonna be, at least in a, from a moral standpoint, the good guys and the bad guys. The next level of this past the moral issue, and it is a big hurdle to get past, but let's get past it to discuss what you mentioned as a threat and the threat to the PGA Tour that the Live Golf Tour is. Similar in, in, in character to maybe the AFL versus the NFL back in the day, the ABA, NBA, USFL, NFL, whatever you like, uh, how, does, how does the existence of the Live Golf Tour affect the business of the PGA Tour? Well, I would just say that the PGA Tour can't compete. So where I would say there's a difference between the analogies that you drew with the AFL, the NFL, the USFL, those are based on market principles. This is uh, what the Live Golf is doing. Is They're not based upon market principles. They're based upon market manipulation and an economy of corruption, so to speak. So they don't care at all about making a profit. That's not what this is about. So they have you know $600 billion fund. They'll throw... Uh, upwards of a billion dollars this year, another two billion next year, and three billion the following year at this with no 
chance of it bringing a reasonable rate of return, but that's not their goal. So the PGA Tour, from a financial standpoint, they wouldn't, why would they uh, try to create, it would be a financial suicide for them to do that. So uh, from a competitive standpoint, financially, uh, they're not going to do it. There is a sense, they, they can't do it, but there is a sense that, look, what's Liv trying to do? They're trying to get 48 players. Now, they've been trying for eight years. This idea came about in 2014, and they've been trying on and off for, for eight years. And what they managed to do by spending, what, five, six hundred million dollars uh, just to cobble together those players and roughly 50, 60 million dollars to run that event last week was cobble together a very poor field uh, when you look at it. I mean, about in about half those players would be very difficult to even find their world rank. Um, you know, they, they were. You know, by my count, there were really less than just a little less than 15 players that anybody would have heard of. Now, um, what are the chances that they'll be able to cobble together 48 world class players? Uh, It seems unlikely to me because they're not going to get world ranking points. Uh, The world rankings will decay. And that means those players that they've recruited won't get in majors. And so whatever the Saudis are buying from a prestige standpoint and athletic ability and therefore the ability to distract people away from their atrocities will wane. Nobody will have any interest. And then the spotlight will then turn right back on these atrocities uh, to whatever extent it was. It So from a, from a financial standpoint, the PGA tour cannot compete. Uh, but from an integrity standpoint, I think the live golf has a lot of hurdles in front of it. What about the idea of strength of field? I mean, clearly losing players, even if they may be uh, lesser than the top players still playing on the the PGA Tour, the strength of field is clearly going to be affected. And that ultimately could affect dollars for the PGA Tour. How how do you see that playing out? Look, the one thing I think that Liv has overlooked is that you can't just pick players out of a world rank and expect them to maintain that world rank or that standard of play play falls off play rises it falls it's not a static system of world rankings and the live golf has no feeder system right now their feeder system by all practical purposes is the pga tour as players come up but think about this if you've committed to live golf and ultimately let's just say that the pga tour is successful that they can legitimately suspend players for playing live golf and keep them from playing. So they're going to, they're going to give up their membership. They're going to go play live golf. So let's say you're one of those 48 players. Let's say Pat Perez does this. Okay. He's 176th in the world. All right. He can no longer play the PGA tour. He no longer has the PGA tour champions to play and he's over on live golf and they've paid him a little bit of money to go over there. But what's going to happen if live golf gets some momentum and they get some higher ranked players these lower ranked players that have committed to live golf will be kicked off. They are a depreciating asset and they will be kicked to the curb when they are no longer deemed to be of value for live golf. Again, there's no safety nets over there. There's no feeder tour. There's no place to take care of them when they come out of college and the prime of their career at the end of their career. So, uh, you know, I, I think when players begin to get a sense of that, when Pat Perez decides to go over there and he's over there for three, four, five tournaments and they decide that he really doesn't have the, the marketing value that they that they thought they were buying and he gets kicked to the curb and now has nowhere to play. Um, I, I think that'll begin to 
uh, hit home with with players. Uh, that, that's that's my view of it. And rationally taking it to its extension, uh, that seems like where the live tour is headed, at least in my view. Yeah, we talked about uh, the moral side of this. Uh, there are pressure points, and right now the focus has been on the pressure points of the players, the PGA Tour membership, the decision that they're making. What about the pressure points for the, the, the locations of this event and those that are hosting it? So, for example, Pumpkin Ridge uh, in Oregon. I, is there a pressure point there that the PGA Tour and, and, and others can put on a place like Pumpkin Ridge to say, we don't approve of you hosting this and we will not host events or our partners at your facility from now on? Look, what I've heard is 11 mayors uh, in the Portland area have registered complaints, uh, are very upset that Pumpkin Ridge has done this. I've talked to a couple of members who uh, uh, dropped their membership at Pumpkin Ridge. One of them in particular uh, is well known in the golf world and uh, is very successful at running events in the golf world and just told me that numerous uh, companies that were planning events at Pumpkin Ridge uh, have decided to go elsewhere. So I think organically they're going to uh, pay a price metaphorically and literally uh, by their decision to present a stage for, by some accounts, and I'll go back to Mehdi Hassan on this, Mehdi Hassan, excuse me, Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi Hassan will argue uh, and he'll do it with great foundation to do it, that this is the most oppressive, oppressive regime in the world. So uh, Pumpkin Ridge is providing a stage for the most oppressive regime in the world uh, to, under the guise or facade of a golf tournament, sports watch right there in their backyard. So I do think, Jay, that there'll be a sort of an organic um, rebuttal to these events and the places where they're held. Looking forward, Brandel, uh, if you had a crystal ball, could you see could you see golf coming out of this overall strengthened, or do you see it overall being diminished in the future? Well, look, the, the golfers' reputations are going to be tainted by this, um, and so by extension, the game of golf will be tainted. Uh, I think that businesses will, if Live Golf gets any momentum at all, businesses uh, will begin to look elsewhere for athletes uh, to to sponsor. It's it's always been, I said this the other day, if you look at the top five uh, highest paid athletes of all time, it goes Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus. So three of the top four are golfers. And, and why is that? that? They didn't earn all that money or even a significant portion of that money on the tours. Uh, they earn that because uh, they're very attractive to businesses because golf by and large is a self-pleasing sport uh, that has a, a great reputation uh, of integrity within the sport. So it's a very attractive uh, demographic demographic for the game of golf. So I think if, if the athletes are tainted and the sport is tainted, there'll be less interest from a corporate standpoint to fund these tours. But really if you start to break it down, so if the tour tries to compete with live, but they won't be able to, but if they tried and they had to then change the independent contractor status of the players and they become contractors, then imagine the lavish sorts of money that they would have to pay these players to be contractors such that it would cut into the charity dollars, such that it would cut into the pension fund, such that it would, it would probably because the charity dollars are no longer prevalent, change the way the pension fund is looked at, change the investment of the corporate world. And so little by little, it would destroy the foundation of the PGA Tour. 
The foundation of the PGA Tour now is built upon philanthropy with lots of safety nets for the players, pension funds, health funds, uh, health care um, uh, tours for the beginning, the prime and the end of their careers. Live Golf, the foundation is just sports washing and greed with no safety nets for the players. Again, they're depreciating assets. Um, so look, if they're successful at all, it has the potential to destroy the very foundation of the professional game uh, and the great trajectory that the game has been on, both philanthropically, uh, I think, and then also from an athletic standpoint. Um, you know, with the momentum that, and unfortunately, gambling is 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 a fact in, in every single sport. Sports gambling is, is a fact, but it's coming to golf. Uh, it's it's uh, unavoidable. So it's here. Uh, NFTs, the money uh, to be made off of, of, of NFTs. So the proceeds from gambling, the proceeds from NFTs has the potential to double and triple uh, the purses on the PGA Tour over the next five to 10 years. So it's, it's not inconceivable that the athletes, the leading money winner, Jay, might make 60, 50, 60, 70 million dollars playing golf, which is certainly commensurate with uh, major sports with only a marginal participation and far less uh, uh, ratings than major sports. I'd say that's, that's a pretty successful trajectory uh, that the PGA Tour is on. You know, there's a business side of this, obviously, which you've so eloquently uh, stated. But how about the the personal relationship side? The I can't think of a, a sport, a game uh, that is more collegial generally than golf. Uh, how is this going to damage personal relationships among those in the game? Well, on the professional level, uh, I'll be curious to see how the players that have... Um, left and gone to live or treated. I guess we'll get some preview of that this week. I can say, you know, as we sit here, uh, it's Monday, U.S. Open week. Phil Mickelson's uh, in the press center today at one. I know that we have cameras following Phil Mickelson around all day long just to see how he's greeted uh, by his peers. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, he was gruffly received by more than a few of them. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a, a few of them that uh, are curious about live golf and will come up and talk to him about it but uh you know tonight on our show seven to nine i'm sure we'll look at a lot of that of that footage but it wouldn't surprise me uh if if the players who've left to go to live um are going to be met with uh, some stern reaction uh from their fellow peers and again some of them will be curious about it um and because there are more defector defectors coming uh no doubt and uh and we'll see those players no doubt um going up to the players that defected previously and, and we'll see them talking to them. But I, I think overall, I think you hit on it. The, the nature of this game is congenial. Um, it is, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, it's a lifestyle sport. Uh, and it's, this game is as much about the people you meet, uh, even at the professional level. I think every one of these players will say that the relationships they've forged in pro-ams over the years, they get to play with you, they get to play with CEOs, they get to play with uh, people who are having a nice run in life, um, and they get to learn from them. Uh, but I think that has the potential to be disrupted uh, by, this, by this live tour. Brandon, let's move, let's move to your career, specifically your broadcast career. When uh, you are as informed uh, and reasonable in your opinions and your, your thoughts and your judgments as any broadcaster I have ever known, and when you first started in broadcasting to today, 
what 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 has been your philosophy of of your on-air commentary because uh, from my perspective you're you're different than than most perhaps than all and especially in golf where you know a lot of us at times and I'll put myself in this as a broadcaster uh, there may be an expectation that we're supposed to throw rose petals at people's feet all the time. And you don't. Uh, you, you, you give the truth all the time. What's your philosophy been throughout the course of your career as to how you do your job? Well, you know, look, I, I have always uh, thought that my job is to, is to say why something happened. Explain why somebody won, why somebody lost. Uh, and, and that's, that's hard to do. I mean, people, are, I think in general are very comfortable with what happened, you know, what the score was, how many fairways somebody hit, how many touchdowns somebody threw, how many home runs or strikes somebody hit or threw. Uh, they're very comfortable with what happened. Uh, they begin to, you know, get less comfortable with why it happened. If someone has an opinion and to get there, I think is very hard. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I have a good work ethic. I love to work. I, I get up first thing in the morning. I work all day. I love to work. Uh, but I'm curious. I sit down and I don't, I always say I do research to discover my opinions, not to support my opinions. So I sit down and I just start doing research. I just start writing, looking, go everywhere. Everything takes me. And then at the end of it, I'll, I'll set, I'll do research for, you know, I don't, maybe a couple of weeks for major championships. And I'll sit down and I'll look at all the, um, what is this telling me? What's the story? What's the theme here? What can I, what can I dig out of this? What can I drive out of this? Where's, you know, and then I'll start writing and I'll start looking and then I come to my opinion and then I'll think, well, what are the counters to that? How could I be wrong? What am I missing? What's somebody going to say to this? What, and how could I rebut that? And then you just keep going and you just keep going and you just keep going un until I got my arms around it. I mean, my job is to know the players and they change all the time. Coaches, teachers, managers, swings, equipment, they change. So every week you got to do that. I got to know the course. Uh, and then I got to know as much as I can about the nature of the game, golf swings, um, and all that nuance. And then because our audience doesn't just watch our sport, they play it and they know it as, as well as we do. And so, and I, and by the time I come on the air, I always joke that almost everything that could be said about the game has already been said about it. And so my job is to try to come up with something that hasn't been said and say it in a way that resonates with people that might be memorable, uh, but also maybe gives them some hope of Im Im improving themselves. And that's been a heck of an evolution. You know, when I first started in TV, you don't, you don't even know where to find the research. You can't even find the stuff. You, you know, they just like sit in that chair. I'll never forget it. Five, four, three, two, one, talk and be brilliant. And I mean, I was terrible or I certainly felt like I was terrible. Um, but, you know, it takes a lot of research, as you know, as you well know, Jay, uh, to have something to say when you go on air. And and I, I love research. You know, from from my seat, Brandon, when I when I watch you, you you don't argue, you make an argument, a reasoned argument in a in a reasonable discussion. And I think there's a there's a difference there. Where does that come from? Your your ability to have a reasoned discussion with someone, make your argument. But you don't ever seem to get uh, rattled by or hurt by the fact that someone else has a differing judgment than you. Yeah, well, look, it's uh, first of all, it's opinion mostly. You know, I, I try to base it in fact, um, but 
you know, generally speaking, when I'm saying why somebody won or why somebody lost, I am, I would like to think, always based in fact, but at some point, connecting dots, you're you're spitting out opinion. Uh, And it's, you know, I grew up in a family, uh, a big family, uh, five brothers and sisters, uh, a couple of them are lawyers, uh, but my dad is... uh, is a, a, a very curious man who likes to debate. And so we grew up in a house where people would sit around the table and debate religion and politics and hunting and fishing, sport, and cowboys and the Dallas Cowboys, because I grew up in Irving, Texas in a pretty darn good decade, the 70s. And that was a good decade to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. And we debated everything. And my dad was really good at debate. And he was good at poking everybody. And, and trying to figure out where the weaknesses were in your argument. My dad, my mom's very religious. My dad's an atheist. I've told this story before, um, but my dad would invite all these religious people over to our house all the time, very religious people. He'd have them over to the house and he'd never get upset, but he just wanted to, to see what they knew, to see what they knew about religion and what they knew about belief and why they believed what they did. And, uh, and, and you know, sometimes they'd get upset, but my dad, my dad never did. Uh, he was just really good at, at poking the bear, I guess, so to speak. And then, you know, my older brother, I can remember one time uh, during Christmas, uh, my mom, you know, my older brother, his name is Bill. He owns his own law firm in Dallas and he was getting ready to leave. Uh, he'd been at the house a couple hours and mom's like, man, I wish he'd stay a couple more hours, you know? And I said, I can get Bill to stay a couple more hours. She was like, well, how are you going to do that? I said, you just watch. And so <laughs> I'm from Texas, you know, we're, um, you know, I know this has been in the, and this is not certainly nothing to joke about these days because it's certainly front in the, in everybody's minds, uh, and rightfully so with the, the tragedies down in Uvalde. Um, you know, but, uh, but my brother likes to hunt, you know, and he's got a lot of guns and, uh, he goes on lavish trips all over the world to hunt pheasant, you know, exotic animals. Uh, um, and I told my brother that the, the second amendment was an out, outdated constitutional right. And whether I believed it or not, and I mean, two hours later, we were at it. We were going, you know, and I looked over my mom and I winked at her. I told you I could get him to stay two more hours. And, uh, and you know, I, I mean, and he, you know, he's so good spirited about it. Uh, but my whole family is that way. So, um, but I do like debate. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know a lot about a lot, Jay. Um, and I figure everybody I meet knows something that I don't know about something that I don't know. And, and I, I try to learn from, them. I, I really do enjoy people. I really do. And I enjoy talking to people and, and learning from them. Well, your love for golf is clear and you're not only again, from my seat, technically skilled in the profession of being able to break down the golf swing, golf courses, you know, your knowledge of the game, but your, your clear love for the history of the game. And that, that doesn't come from research you did a few days before. This has been a, a lifelong pursuit for, for you, clearly. How, how did that start, the, the, the fact that you are so immersed in the tradition and history of the game? Well, probably I went to the University of Texas. Uh, and, you know, of course, Ben Crenshaw preceded me there by a decade. But I think when I was there, you know, just being bound around Ben a little bit and uh, just 
just hearing Ben talk about the history of the game, I think it had an impact on me. So when I was in college, I started reading, uh, you know, about the history of the game. And then you know, on the tour, I played in an era when families didn't really travel with players. There wasn't enough money. They weren't private jets. I mean, maybe one or two people had them or four or five, but not, not too many. Um, so you're on the road alone. Uh, and, you know, I just take big old golf books with me even before the internet, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and I, I really enjoyed it, you know, to, to read about, you know, Harry Varden or young Tom Morse or old Tom Morse or, you know, Walter Travis uh, to read about them. And, and then, and then as I've come to do this job, what I love about just having a foundation of the history of the game is it, it provides context. So, and I would make this argument. So here we are at the country club, right? And, and 1913, and you would know this well, Gary Williams, who, who you're uh, in, in business with here, would know this certainly very well. Uh, 1913, arguably, maybe not even arguably, the greatest moment in the history of American golf happened right here at the country club. Uh, with Francis, we met, uh, beating two giants of the game, and certainly one enormous uh, player in Harry Varden. That was, you know, uh, spurred the game on. The game went from having 350,000 people playing it to 2.1 in, in a blink of an eye, okay? So that's arguably the greatest moment in the history of American golf. But I would say what happened yesterday with Rory winning the Canadian Open may well prove 10, 15 years down the road, 100 years down the road, to be one of the most important days in the history of professional golf. The fact that he had such an in-your-face win, such a, and I would say, even though he won by two, it was, it was dominant in a lot of aspects, the way he hit the golf ball. And it was such an in-your-face back and forth between Rory and Justin Thomas, even Tony Finau. And it was such a, a, an answer to what I would call a facade of a golf event uh, over in London. I think it may well go down as one of the greatest uh, moments in the history of professional golf and the fact that we're here at the country club as i watched that i felt was pretty ironic so history gives you context uh and 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 i think it helps you fully appreciate what you're witnessing today uh, and another thing i think that really does upset people if if you throw out superlatives like gravy it devalues the the actual currency of superlatives. Everything can't be great. Because when something does come along that's great, you've devalued it, you know? Um, and I, I think superlatives are, are, are too quickly thrown around. Um, and you need, we all, I mean, I, I, I struggle with it as well, to be measured in the response uh, to, um, to the achievements that we're, that we're watching. Uh, and and that's, that's tough to do because you get in it, you get after it. But uh, and, and you get you get close to it. You get close to the athletes. So I try to keep my distance from the athletes. Uh, I always say that I want to be able to say uh, critical things of players that I really like and and complimentary things of players that I don't necessarily like. But I would rather not have any view of the players either way and just look at them purely objectively, which is tough to do. But I try. Brandel, I've always wanted to ask you this question, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by using, if you want to call my, my basketball life, a career. So I was a, a celebrated high school player. I was a very uh, solid college player, and I had a very average pro career uh, over, overseas. 
when I look back on it and assess it, um, I'm, I'm very happy that I, I, I feel like I did well. But at the same time, based upon what I expected and my potential, what I felt like my potential was, uh, I look back and I'm, I'm disappointed. When you look at your golf career, uh, great junior player, uh, All-American at Texas, played on the tour for 18 years, won a, won a tour event. How, how do you feel about your career if you would assess it uh, a, a, in your current role as a broadcaster and, and when you look at yourself self-critically? Well, when I, when I was listening to you describe your career, I mean, I could certainly um, relate uh, to a lot of that. You know, I mean, you're uh, and basketball is certainly not my area of expertise, but I understand that your recruiting class uh, at Duke was exceptional. Uh, was it not? Yeah, it was, back then it was, it was the number one one. I don't know if we lived up to it, but yeah, we were, we right. were celebrated. Right. So you had an extraordinary team, an extraordinary high school career, and uh, and, and right went overseas. Uh, look, I I can remember thinking, you know, in college that I was the best player uh, in the country. Now that probably wasn't true. It was probably Brad Faxon and maybe even Mark Brooks, but I was in the it was in the conversation. Uh, and I can you know as I played the tour. I was never as good as I was in college. You know, I look, it's, it's all on me. I did it. I changed my swing. I changed my game. And I just never quite played as well as I played in college. Didn't hit it as long. Didn't hit it as high 15 years. The highest I ever got was 57th in the world. But when I look back on it and people, uh, people do love to criticize my success in professional golf. Um, I think, man, I gave it everything I had. I, I, I rose to 57th in the world. I think that's, Personally, I think that's extraordinary. You know, I, I think um, um, it's not extraordinary achievement in the world of professional golf. But when you think about how many college athletes there are, there's, you know, there's a, I don't know, there's roughly a thousand golf programs in colleges, 10 players, let's say on each team, that's 10,000. How many are going to make it to the PGA tour? There'll be five of them make it to the PGA tour. And how many of them I played 15 years, how many will play 15 years on the tour? A couple. So a couple out of 10,000. So, you know, I feel like uh, I had uh, some success, decent success on the PGA Tour. Uh, I wasn't a star. Uh, I was what they call a journeyman. Uh, and most people say that pejoratively, uh, but I don't take it that way. You know, I, I, I played 15 years. I got to go to the nicest places in the world, play the best golf courses in the best condition, meet the nicest people in the world, and I got paid to do it. And at times I got paid well to do it. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I loved every minute of it. And when I quit playing golf, I didn't really quit because I was playing bad. I didn't quit because I was injured. I, I quit because I just wanted to go do something else. You know, I had played golf every minute of my life. I had given it every minute. I didn't, I didn't leave anything on the table. And I was, uh, what was it? I was 40 years old. And I just thought, you know, I would like to go do something else. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to give it a shot. Do you enjoy golf now as much as you did when you were playing competitively or, or has it changed for you? Uh, I, I probably enjoy it more, to be honest with you. I mean, I, it was a grind uh, when I played professionally. I mean, I enjoyed the adrenaline rush of competing, but now I mostly go out and play golf with my wife or my son. Uh, or, you know, I have two sons. One of them doesn't play, although I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful. My oldest, my oldest son is, he really loves it. Um, 
So I have a blast. My wife loves golf more than I do. Um, you know, we're going to Scotland after the travelers and we're getting over the open early and we're going to go play Gullen and Muirfield, North Berwick and Presswick and Cruden Bay and Royal Dornick and, and, and we're, she loves it and we have the best time and we meet the nicest people. Uh, so I really uh, enjoy golf now. I really do. I, it's not when I go home, it's, you know, it's, it's a little ways down in my priorities. You know, I, I, I would much rather do a few other things. But when I actually play, uh, it's usually with my wife. And I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, Brandon, I could talk to you uh, about golf and and your life and all these different things all day long. But we're gonna we're gonna end this with uh, with with five questions. Uh, okay. Gary Gary Williams turned me on to this, and I like it. So oh. the a golf course that you haven't played that you're dying to play. That's easy, North Berwick. I've never played North Berwick, and I'm playing it on July first, uh, and I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. I'm going to play it with my wife and I'm going to play it with the captain of the club over there and his wife. And I can't wait. Well, it's as charming a golf course as there is on the planet. Last time, <laughs> Brandel Shambly threw a club. Oh, gosh, it was probably a couple of years ago. My wife <laughs> talked me into playing a few events on the Champions Tour and trying to qualify for the Senior Open. And, you know, like I'd go in and there'd be a sign on the mirror. It's 56 days to the qualifying. You haven't practiced. And, and I was like, oh, gosh, I got to start practicing. So the minute I started practicing, I started really caring about golf. And her and I were out playing one day. And I, oh, I had a terrible shot or something. And I think I threw a club. And she looked at me. She's like, I've never seen you do that. I said, well, you've never seen me really care about golf. <laughs> I said, normally I have a cocktail and we're playing. But all of a sudden, I'm trying to get good to qualify for the senior open. And my expectations start to raise. And uh, that 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 fire starts to burn inside of you. But yes, I, I I try not to throw them, but occasionally they've left my hand. So many clubs around the country have a signature thing to eat, whether it's the burger dog at Olympic or the milkshakes at, at Muirfield. Uh, what one signature thing to eat in golf that Brandel Shambly goes to first? You know, for a period of time, I lived in Edmond, Oklahoma, and played out of Oak Tree, and. We would all, there were a lot of tour players living at Oak Tree, but we'd fly home on Monday and we'd go to the club. And at Oak Tree on Monday afternoon, they had white bean soup. And I'm telling you, I still think about that white bean soup. And that was 35 years ago, 30 years ago. So white bean soup at Oak Tree Country Club. I don't know if they still serve it. But boy, I'd give anything for that recipe. I, I think that's the only white bean soup answer to that question in history. <laughs> Your, your, your A game, your best day, your best day with your A game, what player in golf history would you like to play a match against? I have to be Bobby Jones. Uh, you know, I just, I just can't, you can't even make Bobby Jones up. You know, I mean, he, he got an engineering degree uh, from Georgia Tech. He got a literature degree from Harvard and then a law degree from Emory. And then he, he was winning all his majors. I, and he's, the, I mean, just the greatest gentleman the sport has ever produced. So I wouldn't mind getting beat seven and six by him uh, because before he shook my hand on the 12th green, uh, I'd at least, you know, learn something from him. And I'd get to watch that beautiful golf swing. If you couldn't play golf in your life, what sport would, would you have gravitated toward? Uh, probably rodeo. Uh, you know, I grew up, 
uh, I mean, I played football, but they got big really quick and I was fast, but you know, I wasn't that fast. Uh, but I loved horses and I was good at it. Uh, you know, I, I did what they were called play days, but you know, barrels, and, but my brother and I, we roped cows all day long, um, rode baby bulls and we did a lot of dumb things on horseback, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And when I was growing up, that was all I wanted to be was rodeo star until I discovered golf. <laughs> that That's what I want next. Now that's what I want next. I want Brandel Shambly to commentate a rodeo event. That's what the world needs is to hear you take apart a barrel racer for not doing it the right way. <laughs> hey, I I'm fine on the barrel racer. I can hardly watch bull riders anymore. When they come out, I'm like, oh, gosh, I can't, you know, scares the hell out of me. Uh, but those guys are athletes. You go watch Ty Murray. I think he was seven times in a row world champion, maybe eight. And he was a fitness nut. And he could do things on a bull that just defied, defied every athletic impulse anybody's ever had. Uh, and the whole time, you could die any second. And, you know, that's the ultimate sport to me. Brandel, I, you know, I had high expectations of you, but I did not expect white bean soup and rodeo. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, on this five, five clubs conversation. You, you've been magnificent. Thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to finally meet you, Jay. Thank you uh, for uh, allowing me to sit here and talk with you. Really enjoyed it. I cannot thank the great Brandel Shambly enough for joining us on this five clubs conversation. And as we closed, all I could think about was getting some white bean soup and heading to a rodeo. I certainly didn't expect, uh, didn't expect those answers. But uh, we appreciate you joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.